Welcome to the Compounders Podcast, where we explore the anatomy of public company wealth creation stories. On this show, we invite you to be a fly on the wall for the actual conversations professional investors have with public company CEOs. I'm your host, Ben Claremont, a partner and portfolio manager at Cove Street Capital. In these conversations, I interview senior executives by posing the exact questions I ask as part of Cove Street's diligence process. Whether you are a professional investor, founder, or someone who is simply interested in business, we think this podcast has something for you. This season of Compounders, The Anatomy of a Multibagger is sponsored by Tegas. Tegas is an innovative and disruptive company that is changing the way professional investors work. For more information, please visit their site at tegas.co. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Cove Street Capital or any affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The hosts and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. My guest on the show today is Mauricio Ramos, the CEO of Millicom. Millicom is a $3.75 billion market cap mobile and broadband company that primarily operates in Latin and South America. What is most interesting about Millicom is its leading positions in its largest markets and how rapidly the company is transforming itself into a broadband leader in the region. Mauricio has been CEO since 2015, but has been involved with the industry since the late 1990s. Over his tenure, He has overseen the company's ongoing exit from its African operations, as well as its expansion through M&A into new markets such as Panama. Mauricio spent a number of years working for Liberty Global and has brought the John Malone cable playbook to Millicom. COVID has presented the company with some unique challenges, and I thought it would be a great time to catch up with Mauricio about his outlook for Millicom and the markets the company operates within. In this conversation, we had the opportunity to cover the rationale for spending aggressively to become a more broadband-focused company, what he learned about the cable industry while working for Liberty Global, the process of working to become better known by U.S. investors, the benefits of owning cable and wireless assets in their markets, and how to establish a cohesive culture across borders. Before we start, just a few disclosures to note. First, Co-Street owns Tigo Stock, and most importantly, all of the music on this podcast was created and composed by our own Jeff Bronchin. Without any further ado, here's my conversation with Millicom CEO, Mauricio Ramos. As always, we will start the podcast at a pivotal moment in the company's history. For Millicom, I really think it was the day your largest shareholder, Sweden-based Kinevec, alerted you that the firm would be distributing all of its Millicom shares. So let's go back to 2019 in September. At that time, Kinevec owned over 37% of Tigo shares. The company had also had a large impact on your capital allocation strategy. Your stock was not very liquid, and there was a risk that the Swedish investors would start selling the shares, putting even more pressure on the stock price. It's kind of an unusual situation that had nothing to do with the fundamentals of your business. So can you talk a little bit about what you were thinking when all that happened and like the conversations you had internally as you heard that news? Sure. I, I think you actually have to go back a little further than that to understand the context and what was going on. You got to go back to probably around September 2019, maybe a little later than that, because, um, you know, about a year earlier, late in 2018, if I correct uh, correctly, um, we had been approached by Lilac about a possible acquisition. And, and this was, uh, I think, the first indication that we got that, that Chinevik was looking for an exit. Uh, because uh, in the context of that, Chinevik at some point later said that they would be sellers at the right price. So that was a clear indication to us that you know Chinevik was on the way out for their own strategic reasons. And, and the key thing here was that this was all a very busy time for us. We had... Cable Onda about to close, if you recall, in Panama. Um, we were in the middle of listing the company in the U.S. And Telefonica was already talking about exiting Central America. And, of course, that made a lot of strategic sense for us. So we had a fair amount of M&A and a, and a listing to, uh, to, work, to work with. Now, all, all throughout 
the process, we, we always thought, you know, Chinebic had been very supportive of our M&A and our listing plans. But of course, they were not going to be our long-term shareholder. Um, so we, we spent quite a bit of time trying to work with them on trying to help them divest and, and to do so in a manner that would be the least disruptive for the company. At some point, we, we actually you know, went up to them and said, you know, we'll, we'll help you list your shares uh, in the US via placement. At some point, we even looked at buying back those shares from them. Uh, but of course, our leverage was very constrained and that would have not been an easy transaction. Um, you know, all, all simply saying, you know, we wanted to use the opportunity to place those shares in the U.S. Unfortunately, you know, this takes us back to the point where, where, that you're making a reference to, which is none of that really worked. And they decided to distribute their shares, um, creating, you know, fairly disruptive exit process for the company and quite a bit of technical overhang for our stock for quite a period of time. But also... Um, left the company with some positives. Um, the liquidity did increase significantly, and, and that's, I think, a positive. Uh, even if most of that liquidity stayed in Sweden, we are 100% free flow today with very, very strong governance and significant internal controls as a result of being listed in two stock exchanges. So I think of Melicom Tigo today as a publicly traded company in Latin America, 100% free float with strong governance. It's pretty much being in a class of our own in the Latin American context. So that's a, a long history of where we are today from the Chinevic days until today. Yeah, that, that's an interesting backstory that there was all a lot of things going behind, on behind the scenes that uh, you know, shareholders weren't aware of. Um, it was all very interconnected. And so now that you've had some separation from that, I mean, do you, how has your either relationship with the board or, or as a company more autonomy, like what, like having that, it was a painful period. Um, what, what, now that you have some, some separation from it, like, what do you feel, how do you feel differently about the opportunities and, and the way you can, you, you know, run the company versus maybe, you know, when Kinevec was still, uh, you know, 37% shareholder? Yeah, so about a, about a year after I joined the company, um, we made some rearrangements. And as a result of that, the board in uh, Admilicom became independent. Now, of course, Chinebic remained a very important shareholder. And as a result of that, they, they had a significant influence on everything that got decided. <clears throat> the way I navigated through that was dependent as the board was, I always made sure that I had a dialogue with, you know, with Chinevik around strategic decisions, whether it was Panama or Costa Rica or Nicaragua or in the listing, you know, all the big stuff. And of course, when, when they finally divested uh, and left the company, you know, in, 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 in its very independent stage as it is today with 100% free float, <clears throat> the thing that happened is one, the board became totally independent and totally autonomous. And that created a sense of stronger responsibility, stronger commitment. We own this together. And of course, it led to me joining the board, you know, now and it's completely independent on autonomous matter. And I think the second thing that changed, uh, other than this very strong governance, strong independence, is the company and the board gained full freedom and control over its capital allocation decisions particularly when it comes to capital structure. And you saw us obviously start acting in that way right before COVID, when we started to change a little bit how we wanted to, to, to drive those capitalization decisions when it comes to shareholder remuneration. Got it, got it, okay. No, that's great. It's That's a great background. And um, I, I wanna move now into talk about the business, but I like starting at that that interesting period because you just don't see that so often where, you know, you have a large <laughs> shareholder divests and, you know, it throws a company a little bit of turmoil. But let's Listen, we about- if I, you know, we like where we are in yeah. the sense that, you know, we're, we're autonomous and independent, 100% free float. It's pretty unique for Latin America to have that combination. And then this strong governance that we have because, you know, we trade into stock exchanges and we have a management team that's very driven uh, from, from a shareholder alignment compensation point of view. Um, 
And we're all also being left with 100% free float in two exchanges. The one thing we haven't done yet from, from the things that we started is we haven't been able to create liquidity in the U.S. And I'm sure we're going to go back to that. But in my mind, there's still something that COVID kind of put on hold. Yeah, and that was part of the strategic plan. We, we listed a company in the U.S. That was step one. We were very clear that there would need to be a step two, which we haven't yet fulfilled. I would be remiss if I didn't finish that storyline in my head, uh, given where you were going with the past and the present. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. So we've been shareholders for a number of years. And so I think we're pretty comfortable investing in countries that can say, you know, may, maybe have a little bit of elevated political and economic instability. Because um, we really believe that Millicom's a great operator and that you're you're providing essential services. But when a new investor, as you're, maybe you're trying to get investors in the U.S. interested in your stock, you know, when they say to you, Mauricio, how do I get comfortable investing in Tigo when there can be so much volatility in your markets? What do you, what do you say to get, like put those people at ease? A number of things. Um, number one, look at what just happened during COVID. One of the most shocking events in the decades certainly in Latin America. Antigo, Millicom, came out with a stronger balance sheet, better cash flow, more subscribers, more revenue, and more EBDA. So we've demonstrated resilience and stability in our cash flows, which we set out to defend and came out ahead of, even against our own expectations, in the middle of a very difficult crisis. Number two, um, Ultimately, you're investing in a story that has proven out elsewhere. It's broadband penetration. Whether it's mobile or fixed, it's become 100% or 90% penetrated, both fixed and mobile in just about every developed market. In, in America, we just happen to be a decade behind. And our broadband penetrations, both in fixed and in mobile, are 40 to 50% against 90 to 100%. So you're investing in something that's true and tested. Um, number three, look at demographics and look at broadband adoption. They're connected. Latin America and Central America is one of the youngest populations. The average age is around 25 years old. You have household formation because you have middle class formation. And we all know that that drives cable broadband growth. So if you look at the economics of the region, you are on the growth of the middle class, the population and digital adoption. The fourth thing I say is get comfortable with Millicom because this is now almost two thirds a subscription business. This is no longer the mobile prepaid business of years ago. It's got a ton of cable into the system. We can talk about that a little bit later. We got a lot of fix from B2B and we're growing on post-paid mobile. So it really is a subscription business, which gives it a lot more stable cash flows. Look at what happened during COVID. We sustained and grew our cash flows. And five, and the most important point is perhaps you need to look closer at what countries we're talking about and how stable they really are or are not. So yes, we hear a lot about immigration and corruption and political instability. Sure, you got to look beyond those headlines and look at what's happening in the macroeconomic situation underneath. And also, you got to look at the fact that this is not really Argentina, Brazil, or Mexico that sure go through economic crises. When you look at where a cash flow comes from, it's 70% out of Central America. And when you look at those currencies, and you can go back a long time, a decade or two, they've remained extremely stable. Even throughout COVID, those remain very, very stable. And the research for that is their economies are pegged, anchored, driven, sustained by remittances. Remittances in Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador have been growing 40% the last year. And even Nicaragua grew 20%. In Guatemala, they represent more in terms of hard currency than exports. And in Honduras and in El Salvador, they represent almost 20 to 25% of GDP. 
So all of these factors provide for a much more stable environment than you would think if you only read the headlines around corruption and instability at the political level. And now a quick word about our sponsor. Before we started using the Tegas platform in 2017, CoStreet rarely used expert networks to find high value sources to help us better understand the companies we follow. The competitors' offerings were expensive and limited. Tegas changed that dynamic through their innovative business model, allowing firms like ours with a more limited research budget to conduct expert calls at a fraction of the price of others. Tegas then records, transcribes, anonymizes, and posts the transcript to their platform for subscribers to learn from. Every new Tegas customer makes the platform stronger through deeper and richer transcripts, and I've personally seen the growth over the past four years. The Tegas network of experts and platform of previous calls has made the service an indispensable part of our investment process. In fact, we now use the word Tegas as a verb. If you haven't tried Tegas before, I highly recommend going to tegas.co for a free trial and to start Tegasing your research. Uh, you make a good point about, you know, as opposed to painting Latin America or South America with a broad brush, like looking at individual countries and, and understanding, you know, A, what's your market position in those countries? And then what, what are the underlying growth and growth dynamics and demographics? That's a good, a really good point. Um, so, you know, you talked about a playbook here. And so I want to take you back for a second to your Liberty Global days where you worked within the Latin American segment. Um, you know, Liberty Global is a company that uh, whose chairman is cable legend, John Malone. I'm wondering what you learned from, you know, working at a Liberty company and a John Malone influenced company that has informed your strategy at Millicom, because you're saying this has worked elsewhere. Liberty Global has made it work elsewhere in, in Europe. And obviously Charter, which is a, a Liberty company to some degree, has made it work in the U.S. So tell me, tell me what about that strategy and that playbook you can use at Millicom? The playbook is well known, and obviously we've used a ton of it. Thank you to John and to Mike and to everybody who gave me a place to learn for 15 years, and hopefully I was taking good, good notes. Um, but obviously there are some differences because we operate in different markets and we're at an earlier stage of development. So, you know, we got to drive things um, according to that. I, I do learn a few things from, from John and, and many of the board members there. Number one was focus and clarity. You gotta be clear on what you're doing. So when I joined Millicom, we were a little bit all over the place, not just in Africa, but also in the lines of businesses that we were trying to achieve. We we're trying to be a little, a little too much of a Netflix, a little too much of a Uber, a little too much of everything. And we kind of had forgotten the fact that, you know, we're in the connectivity business. So rightly so, and I think it has worked, we killed all those projects and we brought the company back to the basics of connectivity. And, and when, when you look at that, that remains very much something that some of the Liberty companies, if you want to call them Liberty companies, because they're associated with John, um, I still do. You know, when you, when you hear um, Tom, a charter talk about the business they're in, and I'm obviously a board member, it revolves around, around providing a great product, a great service, understanding that we're in the connectivity business first and foremost. So that we had with a ton of clarity at Millicom. And I basically said the money, the capital allocation needs to go out of Africa, out of, out of all these crazy little businesses, and it's got to go into building a cable network and building a 4G so that we can provide connectivity, which is a great opportunity that we had ahead of us because penetrations are so low. And number two, big lesson learned. When I was um, running Chile, I realized one day that, you know, as much as we had built a ton of uh, network in Chile, the teams were telling me that there was still a lot of cable network to be built out. And I remember going out one uh, one of our strategy sessions to one of uh, the ranches John used to invite the management team to and say, you know, in Chile, we can build this 600,000 more homes at the time. And, you know, and I need capital to go do it. And John's immediate reaction was, wow, I didn't think we had this anymore, anywhere in the world. When you can do a line extension, when you can build cable next to the cable that you already have built, that's just your highest return on capital. 
and you know it's going to work because you've just done it in the neighborhood next door to the one you want to build. And I remember his words. This is Cable 101. This is the best return on capital. So fast forward to this, you know, I can vividly remember him saying that. And I joined Millicom back in 2015 and I start asking the same questions. And luckily a great team here tells me, oh no, we got so much cable to build. Like so much, nobody's really built the cable that we would like to and can build. And I said, how much? Well, we ended up a few, a few months after that with you know, a plan to build a million homes per year, which we've been delivering on. So talk about Cable 101. I keep telling the team this story. Where are all those households that we can continue to build? And I can tell you that we're not even beginning to scratch the surface of this. You know, past COVID, we're going to go back quickly to building about a million homes because the opportunity is so big. And again, as John would say, it's Cable 101. You know it's going to work. You know the returns are there. And in our case, it makes all that much more sense because we already have the mobile that has the brand, the recognition, pays for a lot of the fixed costs. So building fixed underneath it makes a ton of sense. Um, that's a good segue to something that I think a lot of U.S. investors are not that well versed in, which is what's called fixed mobile convergence because the quad play doesn't really exist in, in, in the US. So why wouldn't, you know, why don't you talk a little bit about that opportunity where you have, you already have a mobile and you can layer on cable and like, what are the benefits of that? Is it leveraging your fixed costs? Is it churn? Like, how do you, how, why are the economics of that so good? Yeah, so we're going about this from mobile to fixed. So just imagine being in all our markets, the largest as we are in just about almost all of our markets with the exception of one or two markets, the largest mobile player. And you have the opportunity to build a cable footprint underneath you as we've been doing uh, successfully. So we've built an amazing little cable business that's not so little anymore. And as I said before, we got a ton more of it to do. So you already have the brand, you already have the teams, you already have the trust of the consumer uh, so building a fixed infrastructure makes perfect sense because you're going to have a lot of your fixed costs already paid for. But also, you're going to provide with your customers a seamless, to your customers, a seamless broadband product. So at the end of the day, what we provide, and increasingly much more so, is basically broadband connectivity. Even the pay TV product is increasingly because of OTT, just access to broadband connectivity. So to your customers, you're going to provide it seamlessly, fixed and mobile, which is a convenience to them. Of course, the larger your scale, the larger your ability to provide that at a better cost is going to be to your subscribers. But if you're a mobile player and the world is increasingly becoming one of unlimited offers on mobile, and you have a fixed infrastructure underneath you that can provide a ton of offload for your mobile product, then effectively it also means you have the cost advantage on mobile because you can offload more to a fixed network, which by definition still today, and as far as I can see, will be the way to provide a bit at the lowest cost of production possible. So you have these massive synergies which basically I can summarize as coming down to, you have the ability to provide the service you provide, which is a bit, that's what broadband connectivity is about, at the lowest cost of production to you, whether it's fixed or mobile. That gives you a long-term strategic advantage. So sometimes I summarize this the following. My CFO's job is to give me access to capital at the lowest cost possible. Our CTIO's job is to deliver a bid in the form of a broadband product to our customer at the lowest cost possible, regardless of whether it's fixed or mobile. And it just so happens that if you have fixed, you're gonna be able to deliver it at the lowest cost of production. I hope that made a ton of sense because it's an anchor of basically everything we do here. No, I mean, that gets to, you know, having a com competitive advantage, uh, having that ability to have the lowest, being a low cost producer. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that gets us, I think that's, that's a good segue to talk about the idea of a moat. So when I think of, 
a moat surrounding a broadband or a mobile company, I would think of capital assets like fiber, cable, or spectrum ownership and mobile. But of course, you know, the governments frequently allocate new spectrum and competitors can mm-hmm. often overbuild cable or something like that. So where where do you see the moats in, in your business and, and how do you how do you think about adding to them over time? Yeah, so let's let's go first kind of in uh, in the way we were doing this mobile cable and then convergence. I think that'll make a little bit more more sense. So on, on mobile. You know, we we got spectrum, and and you know, spectrum provides a, a moat in and of itself. But then, you, you have national skills, and you have presence when you're number one, and and for somebody to come in and replicate that, they would need to basically in mobile commit to a nationwide rollout of a network. To give you an idea, our four G population coverage. On average, today, after five years since I arrived of investment, is 78% of the population, 98% of the urban population. And this is after five years of heavily investing through today in the 4G network. That, as the brand, as the number one position, leads me to believe that it is really, really a strong business that, that we've created. On mobile, now, if you go to cable, then in cable, you not only have to go build a network, and building a network is not easy. You know, I talk about, you know, getting to 1 million homes past built per year. It took us at Millicom at least 12 months to get up to that speed. And we have the, we have the brand, we have the teams, we have the expertise, and that's just rolling out the network. But then on top of that, you have to go and get subscriber by subscriber. So you have to be willing to invest subscriber acquisition capex. That's not easy for someone to come in and do and commit to in any given country. And then on cable, particularly on cable, you have speed of execution. If you get to that subscriber before somebody else has with a good network, a good product, high-speed product, and good service, those subscribers are unlikely to churn if you're providing good service at a good price. Look at the network penetration that the US guys are getting. Huge penetrations because they got there first, right? So I tell the teams, we gotta get there first. We gotta protect our customer base with a good product, a good service and a good price point. And if we do that right, no one's gonna overbuild because the returns of an overbuild are very, very low if we're doing our job correctly. And then you layer in convergence. So if you're both fixed and mobile, and you have the ability to offer a product that is seamless, fixed and mobile to the household and to the elements of the household, you've basically created a very strong position. We got very strong, very sustained, and in some cases, growing market share in fixed and in mobile. Give you an example of what happened in in Panama, which was part of the investment thesis that we put in when we bought into Panama. We basically bought into 70% market share in fixed. And we immediately bought a mobile asset that had 30% market share. Guess what has happened to that 30% market share? It has increased significantly because we've been cross-selling to that subscriber base. That is creating a mode around a convergent offering between fixed and mobile. And then, of course, you've got the intangibles, which are basically our brand and our team, uh, which we think are pretty good at executing what we do. And something that um, investors probably don't talk and think enough about is, you know, this is a business where you, you can grow by not churning. And one way to do that is to have a good customer service organization. So how do you create a customer service organization that becomes part of your moat and becomes part of that intangible asset you're describing? We're very much in the process of doing that uh, because you know I believe, I believe in it as, as a way of long-term differentiating ourselves. So first is to change the mindset. And I'm not, I'm not gonna kid you or the investors, we're, we're in the process. We used to be a transaction-driven company that sold a ton of prepaid. But I just told you a few minutes ago that more than 60% of our revenue is now postpaid revenue. 
if you put in cable plus the part of B2B, plus the post-pay that we do in mobile. And of course, when you are in post-pay, you are in customer service mode because you're no longer measured by how much you sell, you're measured by how much you keep your subscribers, which means you have to be in customer service mode. So first is to make sure the company understands that 60% of its revenue is now subscription revenue and change the mindset. Two is simply investing in the tools, the facilities, and the training. And that's IT services, call services. You've heard me talk over the last three to four years about building this service layer of the cable business. Well, that's what we've been doing. And increasingly investing in digital. So now we put in bots and we're putting digital self-care tools and AI and all of the things that basically give the tools to the team. And you got to remember the, the basics. You've got to continue to invest in the network and its maintenance because ultimately the network is the product. And installing a good Wi-Fi service makes sure you don't get cold. Um, then you got to put in measurements and feedback loops. So you know, because I've talked about this, we're now an NPS-driven company. It's in our compensation. And what NPS gives you, if you measure it against your touch points, but also against your competition, is a relational measurement that tells you how good you are doing in the eyes of the consumer against your competition. And then it allows me, it allows me to measure each one of the teams and compensate each one of the teams according to how well we're doing against the competition. And lastly, if you put it all together, then you've got to talk to people about a winning culture that basically has everyone oriented around the customer. If you put it all together, it's about executing and being really focused on clarity that this is a long-term differentiator vis-a-vis uh, -vis your competition. You brought up culture, and uh, that's a big topic of conversation on this podcast because you know, successful businesses are not just based on financials and good management teams. You have to build a culture around it. So um, in, in your presentations and in, in, you know, when I look at your advertising, you talk a lot about Sangre Tigo, and it feels like you're developing a cohesive culture around that. Mm -hmm. But you're operating in a lot of different markets that maybe have some cultural differences, even though language is the same. How do you create a consistent culture, even though you're operating in, mar in, in markets that may, you know, may, may have similar language um, bases, but not the same cultures exactly? People may eat different types of empanadas in different countries. They may speak with different tones of the Spanish they speak. But one thing we have clear is that we're one single Tigo, one brand, one culture, one strategy. That is unchangeable, not negotiable. So the first thing, the number one thing is culture is important and everyone needs to understand that it gets driven from the top and created jointly, proactively. So Billycom had a vibrant culture when I joined. All I did was put about 600 people together, our top leaders, and say, we're going to drive the next stage of our culture. We need to understand what it is, where we want to go with it, and use it as a strategic tool. So basically, we put everybody together and said, how are we going to do this? We need a name for it. We need to be clear on what our culture is. And number two, we're going to do it our way. So we're not going to go into the game of mission and vision and all of that very, very painful process of explaining to everybody the difference between one and the other and wordsmithing it. What we basically said is what's not negotiable is our purpose, which you know very well and everybody knows very well. We build the digital highways that connect our communities because those digital highways are effectively a way of creating an idea of what 4G networks high-speed cable networks are. They're digital highways to commit communities, not negotiable. How do we create a culture that gets that objective done? How do we create a culture that basically takes this what and this why and makes it a who and a how, which is us? And we worked around the notion of something that already existed in the company, which many of us had seen. And if you ever are in... Guatemala, Honduras, Paraguay, El Salvador, I promise I'll take you. When you go sail, 
when you go sell door to door, street to street, the first thing the commercial salespeople do is they get pumped up. They get pumped up because they're going to have a hard day. And then they chant. They chant and they have different versions of those chants. So we said, this is our culture. We need a war cry. We need a chant. We need something that everybody can have that basically embodies who we are. And we're warriors. We're entrepreneurs. We go out and we own the company. We sell it to our customers every day. We act as if it were our own. This is what we do. We're proud. So we came out with Sangre Tigo. And Sangre Tigo is something that people can really paint themselves blue with. They can have war cries. And I do the war cries myself. And so does every GM. And we make competitions once a year when everybody comes together for each one of the operations to come up with the better war cry, Sangre Tigo. That's how you drive a single culture that, of course, has values behind it and do's and don't do's, but it's lived. It isn't just something that's sticking out somewhere in you know, the HR department or in front of the operations where people actually leave. I think Sangre Tigo is one of the strongest things I have done for the company. One was a clear strategy. Two was some real good capital location. Three was letting the teams know what they do best, connectivity. And four was letting Sangritivo just emerge because it was ready to be, uh, to be brought up. You can see my tone changed a little bit. Yeah, I, I'm almost tempted to ask you to do the war cry, but um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna okay, hold off on that. Start putting a little bit of it on the investor calls. So great, great, please, please, like you know, investor calls are, you know, they they need some spice. I think that would be great. Um, so we showed this video last time of this uh, Panama uh, technician who came out with a rap. It was unsolicited rap when we change the brand and he is singing what Sangretigo means to him. That's Sangretigo. We're going to show a lot more of those. That's great. That's great. So another thing that, that's always been interesting to me about this company is, you know, let's, let's say you add a new market. Let's say when you added Panama, for example, you know, that builds the scale of the company as a whole, but you know, it's still not contiguous in a certain way. So I guess mm -hmm. I'm trying to understand, like, I get like in the US content world, right? You buy, you're just buying media assets, you're adding scale and you can put it all on an OTT platform and then sell it all around the world. But, you know, you don't have that same ability. So what, what are the benefits of Millicom as a whole being bigger and being in more countries? Um, we do get a lot of those benefits. Uh, we do, we do we do plug and play a new market, perhaps much more so than you would imagine. And we did that with Panama and you did that with, uh, we did that with uh, Nicaragua. And, and you see the benefits, the benefits of it. We've, we've, we've taken the synergies to the levels we said we would and beyond. And we changed the brand in both. So, so, so what is scale synergies at the platform level, at the millicom level, right? So there's obviously the benefits of strategy. Right? I'm not going to pump up the fact that we're going to come in with a strategy that's going to work better. Right? Otherwise, if we didn't have that, we wouldn't be buying into the market. Right? So Panama, we thought we could put cable with mobile, put it together. They would be cross-selling. And there it is. It's, it's working. Same in Nicaragua. We're doing the exact same thing. So you know, there's, there's, there's a platform benefit of just strategy which of course you gotta believe that your management team has the right strategy, otherwise it doesn't make sense. But there's more hardcore platform scale in procurement. And this is real, this is true. This is easily seen in programming. We, we drove programming costs down in Panama when we bought that cable asset, no doubt, that was part of the synergies. There's also platform synergies in procurement. So this is international bandwidth, remember, when Charter or Comcast connects to new market, they don't get any international bandwidth benefits. But we do, because the internet does not sit in Honduras or it does not sit in El Salvador. The internet actually sits 
in the NAP of the Americas in Miami. We gotta connect people to that, right? So skill gives us access to better procurement and our different routes to get there. So we get uh, international bandwidth savings and we also get the benefits of simply scale and CPC and cable, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously you get the benefits of basically a, a, a central management team. But increasingly so, we're running the business in a more centralized manner, more, more, more as if we were a single country. Now, I get it. We're not a single country. We're nine countries, so it's different. But we're creating shared cost or shared service centers, most of them in El Salvador, for the HR transactional functions, for the finance transactional functions, and those do drive a lot of synergies. So increasingly, we're going to move a lot of the transactional matters out of each one of the countries and put them in a shared service where there are synergies and where there are a lot of more skill. Hope that answers your question. No, that's so there's really a lot helpful. more than meets the eye, really. Yeah, that's really helpful. So uh, um, there's a good question about centralization and decentralization because you know every different market has different dynamics, but especially you know, when it comes to the government. And so one of the more interesting and, and maybe challenging things about operating in the countries you do is that the government, you know, can be a big player and so can the regulators. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of investors forget that, you know, governments and regulatory bodies are important stakeholders for companies. So I'm interested to hear about your general strategy for maintaining win-win relationships with governments within your markets. And I'm wondering how much of that is in Miami and how much of that is on the ground in Colombia. Yeah, God, that's a really good one. Very, very insightful. So this is not uh, as simple as a single country U.S. company. But we do have a lot of platform synergies because we do what we can do out of Miami in a centralized manner. And we coordinate with each one of the operations what they best can do. So on your prior question tied to this one, the one thing that the countries can do themselves far better and must do is the go-to-market strategy. We cannot execute for them. We cannot be on the streets for them. And that the local uh, management teams have to do. They also have to be very, very strong government relations, very, very strong government relations on a day-to-day -day basis. We are certainly the number one, or in some cases, number two telco company in each one of our countries. But that also makes us one of the top five or maybe top 20 in the case of Colombia, total companies in, in, in a given country. So we're one of the largest, if not the largest private company in each one of the countries. So we have to have local general managers that speak to the government continuously and have very good relationships. We renew Spectrum every year. We renew licenses every year. Most investors don't realize that. And we do that on the basis of really, really fluid relationships. Now, <clears throat> each government, each, each president needs to understand how relevant we are and how important a relationship is with them and for them with us. So I try to meet with all, if not, uh, with most, if not all of our presidents at least twice a year because it is important that they understand that the development of their digital economies, the creation of these digital highways, which is infrastructure for the digital development of their countries, sits largely in our hands. And as a result, because this is development for them, we need to be in sync. So we share with them what we're doing in terms of social responsibility, building out those networks. You know, just much like it's beginning to happen in the US, Presidents do ask me, how much have you built since we last talked? What little uh, you know, communities are you now reaching with either 4G or cable? You know, how extensive is it? You know, how much can I count on you helping develop the digital economies? Um, so it becomes a very working relationship. In turn, I basically say as well, listen, the more you charge for spectrum, the less I can put into the network. So you're going to have to make the capital allocation decision whether you want that money to go to the Minister of Finance or whether, you know, for him to spend, 
or whether you want that money to go into the digital development of your economy of, of your economy. That's your decision, but I need to make it obvious to you, right? Because that's going to affect prices. And, and I keep telling them, honestly, this is how the conversation goes. We need to have a fluid dialogue because this development of your digital economy, you are not like the US. You cannot finance it here. It does not get financed here. And if they're smart, they get it like in two seconds, because usually I ask for the finance minister, finance minister to be right there. We bring capital from the stock exchanges and we run a balance sheet that could not be financed in Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, Panama, or even Colombia, right? So you got to understand that for these funds to keep coming and help develop your economies, there must be a return to them. And you got to make sure that this virtuous cycle continues on. This is my conversation all the time. If you push us too hard, if you don't help us, there's not going to be next year's financing round. So it's got to work for everybody. And that's how you drive sustainable understanding of what the telecom sector should be. I hope that made so much sense. If not, I'll try it again. No, that was great. Very, very articulate description of, of, of your approach there. Um, I want to jump to a slightly different topic. And, you know, I think a lot of specifically U.S.-based investors have seen the multiples that companies like Charter have started to trade at and the multiples that, you know, really ne they never traded at it. And then and then you look at mobile operators around the world and people who are primarily mobile always get these big discounts to this, to that. And so, you know, for someone who, you know, I've never really invested in mobile companies before, and this is, you know, Millicom's kind of my first, uh, our, my personal first foray into that. Like what, why is there such a big disconnect between people's perception of cable as a super stable thing that you can put high multiple on and mobilize <laughs> this like very transient high churn business that gets a low multiple? I'm, I'm just, I'd love to hear your perspective on that. Well, I'm gonna. Uh, this this is one I don't I don't really have a good answer for because it's a little bit of a conundrum to me, as well. Um, and and you know I've, I've given one way to look at it, and there may be many other multiple ways to look at it. So, you know, from a multiple approach, which is the, the thing I don't get, Millicom trades at around five times EBITDA today, probably even a little lower than that. And you can kind of go, okay, well, it's an emerging market telco. And I can simply say, well, it's not really a telco. And I just told you it's not unstable in the sense of emerging markets. Let me tell you why I don't think it's just a telco. Because I just told you a little while earlier why I don't think it's just an, any other emerging market. It's like very, very tied to the U.S. because of the remittances. So today I said earlier um, about, uh, about 35 to 40% of our revenue today is actually cable, residential cable. So if you, if, you lie, if you layer on top of that, the B2B that comes from the fixed network, the cable network, it's more. And if you layer on that, the post speed, which is very stable, it's even more. But let's just do the home cable. It's about 1.6, 1.7 million billion dollars of revenue today. And in that has an another $600 million of B2B, which is cable revenue. It's just not residential, but every cable company has some B2B fraction to it. And I'm just allocating the fixed part of that. So that's 1.6 billion plus 600 million. And then I share that with some of the minorities we have in Honduras, Guatemala, et cetera. So I got to take out about $600 million. So in my head, I end up with a figure which is cable-like revenue, like you would in the US or something, of around 1.6, 1.7. And Millicom runs at a 40% margin. I'm just going to put that into cable, right? I'm just going to say it's the same margin. I'm not going to tell you it's marginal, better margin because I've already paid for the marketing. Let's just call it 40%, which is what you know would be reasonable, which gives me about 650 to $700 million of, of cable EBITDA in my head, right? So I kind of go, all right, well, don't give me US multiples. Give me seven or eight times. It's cable, right? You give it to some of our competitors, right? Just give it to me, right? Seven to eight times. If you do that, it means you're valuing our mobile business at three times. How does that make sense? You can do the reverse math, of course, but it's easier to do it that way. You can do the mobile math 
and end up with the notion, which I'm sure you'll do, that you're getting cable at freaking four to five times, right? How does that make sense? Particularly, and I'm becoming, I'm becoming you know, you can, you can see my tone at change on the things I care. And then particularly when the mobile business that we run ain't a bad business at all, right? You're talking about a mobile business that has margins north of 40%. With significant free cash flow, look at look at our Guatemala operation drives meaningful cash flow, and it's eighty percent mobile. So it's not a bad business, and seventy percent of our cash flow is in Central America, which has two to three players on mobile, and it's driving really really good margins. So I just kind of go, I don't get the multiple game here. I, I really don't get it. And obviously, what I'm trying to say is, I think we're highly undervalued particularly because you get our fintech business also for free, which has got to be worth something, right? Oh, it's probably worth more than your entire market cap if it trades like other fintechs. So um, ah, there you go. You get that <laughs> one for free. Um, so, but, but let's get to capital allocation then. So if I'm you and I'm sitting in my seat, I'm saying I should be spending every dollar on cable. And you know what? Maybe I should be starving mobile. How do you, you know, how do you balance capital allocation when you know that, whatever it is, investors favor the cable side versus the mobile side. Listen, I'll, I'll <laughs> this is how simple sometimes the budgets become and the long range planning and the capital allocation goes. I'm, I'm gonna say it bluntly. First money, remember uh, my, my little story about John? It really kind of got in there. It's the first capital you allocate. What we're doing is we're building line extensions to an existing cable business in all the markets we operate, whether it's Colombia, Guatemala, Honduras, everywhere. We're basically doing cable 101. So first money goes to cable, no doubt. We cannot build more cable than we're building, like physically. Like, like you know, if I build more, I'm going to crash the Ferrari. Now, during COVID, we slow down a little bit, of course. But look at the demand we're seeing. We're adding four to 500,000 new cable customers a year in the last 18 months during, during uh, COVID. So as I said earlier, we are, as we speak, looking at our budget for next year and we're kind of going, okay, we're going to ramp up the build machine because clearly the selling machine is selling a lot. The message I'm driving is it's the first money that gets allocated and we cannot allocate more money to it. We just physically can't, uh, you know, build more than a million and sell more than four to 500 and, and service it correctly. So I, I just want to, perhaps a different way of saying is everybody knows that cable is the baby. Internally, everybody at Millicom knows that cable is the baby. Now, we're also, um, you know, growing on mobile. So that also requires quite a bit of attention from our capital because we got growth in mobile uh, and particularly in post speed, we're growing significantly in a market like Colombia. So from a capital allocation point of view, taking it now bigger, I simply go cable, then growth on mobile, and then the auxiliary projects. Of course, there's some IT, there's some, some other stuff. Once we've allocated the money internally, then we go into external capital allocations, but we got so much growth, I believe in the business that that's why we're putting money into internal growth. I had another strategy question that I've always wondered about in, in this company is, do you, so let's say in Colombia, for example, in mobile where there are four players now, there are other of your markets where there are really just two of you and you know, you're the number one or number two and it's a much more stable environment. How does your strategy differ in a place like Colombia versus, a, you know, another country where you're where you're in a duopoly and it's just it's much more stable? Yeah, that's a great question, and, and we do manage them in a differentiated manner strategically. And this goes back to what does the center do? The center makes sure that the strategy makes sense for the group and oversees that the strategy in each one of the countries makes sense. So wherever we're number one or number two, we're not number one in Bolivia, we're happy to be number two, but everywhere else we're number one, we certainly wanna make sure that the country continues to grow and the industry continues to grow. So we will be 
very focused on making sure that the industry is investing, the industry is managing ARPUs well, and the industry has a return to continue to invest. And that's what you see us doing just about everywhere else. And wherever uh, we see a competitor falling out of line, we use our size, we use our leadership to try to get them to come back to the notion of, hey, let's make the industry grow. This is a two to three player market and we need to make sure that digital development happens in these countries. Now, Colombia is a, is a different animal because Colombia hasn't quite settled yet into its long-term stable industry structure. I think the other markets are largely settled or settling. Colombia hasn't yet because basically there's a few of us that do not have sufficient um, market share as a percentage of the total market share in a given country that we can make a decent, a decent margin on our business. And so Colombia, we take a different view, which is we need a different stable equilibrium. So we are not in a, have not been in a stable equilibrium for a number of years. And what has changed over the last couple of years is we've, we've attained the tools to drive a better bargain, if you will, for a better, more comfortable equilibrium for us with higher market share. And the tools we've attained are Spectrum. We built a ton of fixed network that coupled with not having access to low frequency Spectrum, which we never had in the past, and a fantastic team that's executing really well, it gives us an opportunity because we have an empty network, very low mobile market shares, 15 to 20%, and a party that has disrupted price to then go for volume. We're not going for volume forever. We're not going for price competition forever. What we're looking for is for a better equilibrium in which we have higher market share and better returns. So we are managing Colombia differently for these reasons. Another quick question on capital allocation. So Wall Street investors can be can have limited patience to wait for your extensive investments in mobile and broadband to play out. But I'm curious about what you know, how you get the organization to be um, excited about making long run investments that may hurt margins now and may hurt growth, may, may help growth later, um, and have the overall payoff be be greater in the long run. But you know, there's some short-term pain. How do you get an organization to you know kind of suffer in the short run to, to really benefit in the long run? You make them long-term investors. And that's what we've done. We have a, a long-term share compensation program that basically makes the top 400 of our managers the investors in the company. In the company, 50% of their annual bonus on top of their long-term incentive plan gets paid in shares that get deferred over time. And as a result of that, we got 400 individuals. Believe me, they listen to the quarterly earnings. They know what budget we put in place and they call me and they call others and kind of go, I don't get it. We're investing really well. The business is growing. Why is our stock tanking? Right? So that's how you do it. You make your management team a long-term investor in the business. And we got 400 of those. We just had a moment, by the way, last quarter, where basically we took the decision to make long-term investments internally, happy as we could be. We're seeing the growth. We basically said we got to put more of the money that we're creating in terms of revenue and EBDA and put it into long-term investment. And I basically said to the market, there's going to be less reporting cash flow this year because we're going to invest a little bit more. The team did not hesitate for a minute internally. Actually, they came to me and said, this is what we need to do. Then we went to the market and the market took a, uh, you know, a more short-term view and said, well, you know, where's the cash flow? You may not give me that revenue down the road. So in our view, we did the right thing for the long-term health of the business. And sometimes you get punished in the short term. So be it. As I said earlier, we're long-term shareholders. So that's how you get it done. I mean, that, that makes sense given your points about being a first mover and getting there first and, and, and allow, you know, especially in the cable business, that can be really important. So that makes a lot of sense. So um, we're getting close to the end. I've got a couple more questions for you. Um, you, you know, you started off with the Liberty Playbook, which you said has worked well elsewhere. 
But I'd love to know some critical things that you've had to rethink or change your position on over your time, you know, in in the cable and mobile industry. Like what 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 any things that you you look back on and say, wow, I wish I would have understood that differently or sooner. Yeah, I'll I'll be as transparent externally as I have been internally. I knew little about uh, Tigo Money and fintech, and I took the view that the company, and rightly so, I believe, but there's always a cost to your decisions. I took the view that the company needed to get out of Africa, allocate its capital to the cable build and to the 4G network, which had not been built. When I joined, there was only 10 15% population coverage. So I took the view that we needed to put all our capital and all our focus on that. And of course, we talked about the Chinookib divesture and obviously spent a lot of time making sure that came out as smooth as it possibly could. And of course, listing the company. More importantly, I took the view that our capital and our management team focus needed to be put into the connectivity business, building that 4G network, building that cable business, which today is a phenomenal cable business and recognized as it may be. But I also took the view that our fintech business could wait. And I may have waited longer than it was necessary. I don't know. But 18 months ago, right before COVID, I took the view that we were ready with the cable business, that the business was going to go back to growth as soon as COVID uh, was uh, you know, starting this recovery path. And you've seen our growth pick up. So we started uh, dialing back or, or, or putting a lot of emphasis back on Tigo money. That's the one thing I may have lost a couple of years on, and I intend to recuperate those because we do have a fintech opportunity that we are well positioned to take advantage of. And I intend to make that time back because I do have a little bit of a regret there. Um, I think it's a perfect segue to... Um are the question we always ask to close out an, an interview. Um, and, and I'll give you the, the floor if you want to talk to T- about Tigo Money or anything else about your business <laughs> that you think is, I mean, we've talked about a lot of things that you think are underappreciated, but what do you think, what would you say is the most misunderstood or most underappreciated opportunity that, that you have in front of you that you, know, you really want to leave investors with? Well, they, they say that you know, a CEO kind of builds for the first five years, and then he basically harvests or caches during the second you know, five years. I, I hope we're getting to the point where this is gonna happen. Um, I think there's a lot of things that are underappreciated. We've redeployed a total capital to Central America, which as I said earlier, it's a very stable with economies, with very good industry structures. So I think that's underappreciated. We're not in Argentina. We're in Central America, hasn't had a devaluation in two decades, remains strong. Our cash flow is underappreciated as well. Uh, we produce quite a bit of cash flow and have access to more of it, uh, you know, that we share with, with our minorities. And um, we've created a cable business that remains underappreciated and has tons of growth. It's growing double single, sorry, single di- double single digits, you know, whatever it's, whatever that is. It's growing 12%, you know, a year. A cable business growing 12% a year, top line. How many of those can you get that are approaching $2 billion in revenue? We're at 1.7 this year, growing, you know, single, low double digits. And then we have a fintech opportunity that I've only begun to articulate on a business that's pretty, pretty robust because we just came out of COVID stronger than we were before, because we have this really, really strong market positions in all the countries we operate with a phenomenal management team. And if you believe, if you believe for a minute that Latin America has the opportunity to create more scale in a second player, then that cannot be created without Tigo. So I think all of these things are completely underappreciated. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you have done a really good job of, of checking off the list of things that people are either not familiar with or, or maybe misunderstand or just in general, like, you know, this, this company is kind of still, quote unquote, new to, to the U.S. markets, given that you, you just recently listed. So that's, 
you know, that, I mean, that's been always my thought is that like, they're just part of it is just telling your story. And that's the one thing, as I said earlier, that, you know, it's not a regret because it's in the to-do list. Just as I'm going to make up time on Tigo money, right? It's a slim promise that I made myself. We also have to do step two of the purpose of listing the company in the U.S. We knew, I told the board, listing the company is not going to give us liquidity in the U.S. It doesn't matter how many times I go out to New York and Boston and California and San Francisco. Unless we increase the liquidity, unless we place some shares in the U.S., you know, it's going to be difficult for people to really, really spend the time and buy into the Millicom story. So I know that we still have some work to do there. Well, our hope is that uh, this uh, interview and this podcast can can be a good platform for that. Um, with that, Mauricio, thank you so much for your time. This was a great story. Um, and, you know, I, I personally am really looking forward to to seeing what this company looks like in five years, because I, I do. I love the idea that you've you've laid the groundwork and now it's about harvesting. So does my investment account. Yes. We're on the same page. Like like that we're highly aligned. Mauricio, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. Ciao, ciao. That's it for our show today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. We recognize that you have a lot of different podcast choices, and we appreciate you spending the time with us. We are continually working to make the show better, and we would love your feedback. The more candid and honest, the better. And if you have any suggestions for public company CEOs you would like to see on the podcast, please let us know. And of course, warm intros are always appreciated. Please feel free to email us at podcast at cobestreetcapital.com with your comments or suggestions. Thanks again, and stay tuned for the next episode of Compounders, Anatomy of a Multibagger.